praise God. So we've been looking at Revelation for a little while now, and uh, as you know, it is the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, by the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, it's revelation, not revelations, and I need to keep correcting myself because I say revelations, but it's a revelation of Jesus, and it begins uh, with Jesus introducing, uh, letting, uh, uh, it was given to Apostle John, uh, and Jesus uh, introduces, uh, he says, I am the Alpha and Omega, and, and he gives some background about himself. And John falls on his face in worship, which is an interesting, um, a telling response because of anyone who knew Jesus in person, John was the one who knew him uh, probably best other than his, possibly his immediate family, certainly as a disciple. And yet when he sees Jesus this way, he, he falls on his face in worship. And then Jesus uh, talks about he's, he's standing in the midst of seven uh, candle stands, which are the uh, Jewish uh, candles or, or the oil-filled oil lamps. And, uh, then he, and uh, the seven stars, which he says are the seven angels or messages to the church, to each of those churches. So the candles were the church. And uh, seven local churches. And um, the stars, it says, were angels or messengers. And uh, many Bible scholars believe that it's actually addressing the seven pastors of, um, of those seven churches, because in other places they are called messengers and they are referred to as stars. So whether they were the angels or specifically or pastors, it, it doesn't really matter. It's a similar role. It is interesting when you read the book of Revelation, and we've talked about this before, uh, it, it, the early church struggled with it a lot. Uh, it was written probably around about 95 AD, uh, uh, and so that's somewhere around 65 years after the death of Jesus. And it was written by, most scholars believe, and most people believe, and we believe, that the Apostle John, and he was on the island of Patmos, he was there uh, being imprisoned on the island, uh, probably because Caesar had already tried to kill him once, and these are uh, non-Christian secular sources, historians tell us this, that Caesar had tried to kill him by dropping him, or ordering that he was dropped into a, 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 a vat of boiling oil, and he didn't die and continued to preach the gospel. And it's just not a good look for a Caesar to try, who is supposed to be divine and the Lord to try and kill someone and not be able to kill them. So rather than try a second time, they put him on exile on the Isle of Patmos. And he's given uh, these uh, very um, grandiose vision. And in our day and age, some of these things are hard to interpret. And, but they weren't necessarily hard for the first century. One way of looking at the different signs, we've talked about this, the different signs and symbol in the book of Revelation, some of them are very explicit. They really don't need explanation. So if a, you know, a, a dragon uh, coming out of a lake of fire or being thrown to a lake of fire, obviously Satan being, uh, being uh, thrown to his ultimate destination. And then others are explained in the book itself, so you always look for the context. It's just basic Bible interpretation 101, let the Bible interpret itself. So if it says what the symbol is, well, that's probably what the symbol is, don't you think? 
All right? And so, uh, and then, uh, it, it's, so for example, Jesus says the lampstands are the, uh, are the churches and the stars are the, uh, are the messengers to the churches. And then Jesus said, and I walk, and he, Jesus was walking in the midst of them. So uh, that is symbolic, but clearly these are the seven churches. Seven is a, a, a number of completion. They were literally seven churches, but it also applies to the whole church. And Jesus was in, was in the midst of it, so he really is saying, I am in the midst of you, and I'm intimately concerned with what goes on in his church. All right? And then there's the symbol, some symbolisms which you need to dig a little bit deeper, but really, if you've got a good reference Bible, it'll tell you from Ezekiel or, or Isaiah or Daniel, and you can go back and pretty well see what they are. And then the fourth type of symbol, uh, we, we really, it's hard to tell, and the Bible calls those things mysteries, and mysteries are typically become revealed or very clear when they happen. All right? So when it happens, here we go, uh-huh, uh the church will see it and know that it's, uh, it's happening. And there's a lot of upset in the church in the moment. Uh, there's not supposed to be. We're supposed to be at peace, all right? And any message that comes from God is first peaceable. Any wisdom from above, the Bible says, is first peaceful. Okay, so in, but you can see the world maneuvering. Those of us who have been saved, you know, more than a few years and even... You can see what's going on behind all of this. And one of the things in understanding uh, the book of Revelation or the Bible is that uh, there is a spiritual realm. The spiritual realm is more real, actually, than the physical realm because it existed beforehand and, it, and all things get burned out, it, it would still exist. Okay? And, and then time and time again, you see in the Bible where there's uh, something happening in the world physically, and behind that, or uh, instructing it, are different uh, evil forces uh, and uh, that are, are moving it, uh, and, uh, or arranging things, okay? So the Bible talks about that. Uh, in, one of the, in one of the books, uh, to one of the churches, it talks about, it, it names a lady in the church and calls her Jezebel. Now, whether her name was Jezebel, we don't know. Unfortunate name, there's not too many ladies in Christian circles called Jezebel. Right for very good reason, uh, but it's quite likely that the same spirit which was motivating Jezebel in the Old Testament, of course, uh, was still doing its its dastardly work, motivating and trying to destroy the church in the New Testament. All right, so so there are those layers, and a lot of the symbolism is really just a layer which is very hard to express, uh, and so they use quite extreme symbolism. We see what's happening now. We should not be surprised as the end unfolds, church, that uh, there's a greater control that tries to come over people and over the church, and uh, Christians have to decide on what hill are we prepared to die. All right? So I say that because um, uh, the early church had much more persecution, much more unfair and unjust government than we had have. Uh, we really, do, and, and even, you know, what's going on at the moment is actually not really restricted compared to what the Australian uh, uh, society was like even uh, 60, 70 years ago. 
uh, in that, you know, babies were taken from people, people were forced into forced isolation. Uh, in the uh, pandemic that came through the turn of last century, you couldn't cross states, you had to camp in tent, no air conditioning before you cross states. All those things have happened before, all right? We, uh, but the early church basically decided on, on a few things. One, uh, that the, um, the value of human life, all right? to our ability to worship God and to proclaim the gospel. All right? And that's the hill that they were prepared to die on. Not how many taxes, not whether you had to go here. So it's just mindful to keep that in mind. All right? That was free. Praise God. So we look now at the first, uh, the first uh, church, which is the church in Ephesus. And uh, just reading through that, thank you, Cam, uh, it is uh, a few things become very obvious to us. So Revelation 1 says, I am Jesus, I'm here, I'm walking in the midst of you. It's good to take Jesus at his word. Who, who finds it pays to take Jesus at his word? All right? And so he's writing this letter to us. He's, I'm walking in the midst of you. I am very interested. Who knows that Jesus is very interested in what goes on here this morning? That's worth thinking about. And he's interested in about our, how we walk as a church and how we walk as a family and how we walk as individuals. And he takes note. All right? That itself uh, will cause us to sit up and think, wow. And he's standing, I'm in the midst of you, right? I'm taking these notes. All right, about you, I'm watching. And now he gives up, he gives this feedback. All right? Um, he's taking a very keen interest in us. Say, Jesus, say this with me Jesus takes a keen interest in me. That's right. He takes a keen interest in our spiritual walk and how we walk, how we walk out this redemption that we have matters. We have got a saying which was back down there. Uh, you matter to God, you matter to others, and what you do today matters for eternity. And we've spent weeks trying to get that into us, that what we do with our life will matter for eternity. There are rewards. The things done in the flesh, carnally, uh, of our own nature, will be burnt away, and, and then people will be given responsibilities in the new kingdom according to how willing they are to work graciously in love and in obedience. He's coming on a white horse, that means with authority, with crowns, that means to hand out areas of authority, which he will allocate to us. So that, that is awesome. The time will come. And we'll think, hmm. You ever had those, hmm? You think, hmm, I remember. Yes, I do recall that conversation that we had. You know, and God is saying to this now, he's saying to take stock of where you are spiritually. Who knows that that's a good idea to take stock where you are spiritually, financially, with your relationships. So this this is like a... Um, um, uh, so the, the, the letters to the seven churches, they are seven physical churches, uh, and it goes clockwise around those churches geographically. 
but it's uh, but it also represents all of us as well, right? So that's me. That means this letter is written to me. Moi. Can you say that? Can you say moi? Moi. moi. It's written to me. Uh, and when you think about it, uh, you know, and it's a little bit upsetting as a pastor, but uh, very often the church, uh, people in the church running around looking for words of this, and there's this prophet saying this, and this prophet saying that. You know, I don't often get text scriptures. I do. I rejoice when I do. It's about time we start to get excited about what God says about this, the time we're in. And so this is a letter written to us. And we need to think about that. Uh, and now that we, we know that, we're accountable for that knowledge. Okay? Uh, and so he, the uh, comments he makes to the seven churches, they form really uh, four things. And they, I managed to get them all starting with C. Isn't that exciting? Yeah, yeah, it is. Thank you. They are commendations, things they're doing well. They are charges, things that he asks or expects them to do. And then following the charges, there's crowns and there's consequences. All right? So it, it is interesting that Jesus actually knows the things that you're doing well. That I'm doing well. And that Cam's doing well. He knows it. Alright? And and he commends it. Okay? And, and he intimately knows it. But he also knows the things, really, that maybe we should do. Or And, and you've got to understand, when Jesus gives us uh, direction, it's always for our benefit. Things will work out better in the end. If you do this. Alright? He's not doing it to spite us. He's not doing it to make our life a misery. All right? Obedience comes with it blessings. And so for each of these churches, there were charges that they had to do. And then he said, if you do this, there's, there's this crown waiting for you. If you don't do that, there's these consequences waiting for you. It's like a midterm report. All right? Anyone sort of... You know, you, anyone still in school around here? You're in university, right? And you get your midterm assessment, how you're going. And uh, I, know, I remember when I had to do the HSC, HSC High School Certificate. Anyone graduate New South Wales, they would have done the high school certificate. And we had a goal that we had to do. And we were given the last two years of school. There was a, a quarterly assessment. We went and sat with our council where we're at. And then we had to, um, we, we just had to track how you're doing. This is a spiritual track, these next, uh, this message and a few others, of how we're doing, how this church was doing, and how we're doing, all right? I remember going through, I think it was like second year at university, and I was a typical male university student. Uh, if I went to class, it was reluctantly. I remember one year I did a whole, a whole semester without reading any of the literature. And uh, did I manage to pass? Well, not really, because I got hauled before the, the uh, academic council one semester, and I had to give reason as to why I shouldn't fail the semester. And, and that makes you sort of sit up and take notice. I could think the very best reason was because I don't want to come back. 
<laughs> I don't want to come back. So I had to give excuses. I had some pretty good excuses. And one of them was just, I was just being slack. I was too, you know, I was too busy with Christian things, you understand, Christian groups, and, and uh, also playing rugby and a few things like that. Well, this is a midterm report for the church in Ephesus. So it's a midterm report for us, and we can look at it and we can check at how we're doing. All right? It, is that valuable? Is that valuable? It is valuable. You know, nowadays when I started teaching, they just submitted things, you just mark them, pass, file, ABC. Now they, 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 they put in a draft. Have you noticed that they put in a draft? And they submit it to their teachers. Here's a draft. And then the teacher goes, this is doing well, that you're not doing well. Maybe you should look at rewording that way. If you were smart, you'd follow that because that's the one who's going to mark you. All right? That's the one who's going to mark you. And so say, okay, this is doing really good. I need to expand on that. Well, this is the draft. You know, these seven letters to the church is us, his midterm report, it's God saying, okay, this is how you're going. It's not too late to make changes before the final day when you will stand before me and those things in your life which were wasted will burn up and those things which you get reward will be rewarded. So I'm trying to say it pays to pay attention. Have I got that message across? Hallelujah. So the church in Ephesus, all right, uh, it had these condemnations. You have your Bible open. If you turn Revelation chapter 2. The church in Ephesus is an interesting church. I'm very glad. It's an, it was an amazing church. There's a couple of chapters about it. Of course, there's the book of Ephesians. A couple of chapters about it. But he had, uh, but it, it was uh, really a model church in many ways. But I, I find it interesting that this is the first book which Jesus addresses because this is like uh, the do-gooder church uh, and I don't mean that sarcastically this is the church that really tried to do everything well and eventually kind of just got ground down by the religion of it and by the systems and they were starting to feel tired what God did in the church of Ephesus was amazing. Uh, and we'll look at a few things in the book of Acts. But it's like every Christian, you know, after a few years, you go through that stage where you know, I just, I'm tired of the grind. You know? And they got tired of the grind. Who can relate to that? Okay? Where what was once faith and joy becomes religion and works. And they were a bit like that. And they were a precious church to to Jesus, and so he addressed that. So, uh, first, first con condemnation is in two. He said, I know your works, your labor, and your endurance. It doesn't it feel like that sometimes in a Christian? I'm enduring. I'm going to endure through this, you know, right? Uh, and so we're enduring through it, okay? You cannot tolerate evil people, and you have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not. You found them to be liars. This is interesting. I don't want to harp on this. However, at, you know, at, at apparently in the early church, and he addresses Thessalonians and Colossians the same way, there were people going around pretending, and perhaps they thought they were spiritual, all right, and, and giving all sorts of words, you know, and, and, and he said, now you, you judge those words wisely, obviously according to the scriptures that are already being written, 
All right, and you tested uh, apostles and, and are really glad that the truth matters. Who knows that the truth matters? All right, uh, truth matters because uh, you know we can live our lives thinking one thing is true, and at the end we get to it and it's not true. Or we keep bumping up against spiritual walls or emotional walls and not having any light. So the truth mattered to the church in Ephesus, and for Jesus that was good. It was good that they took the care. And the truth matters. So that was a condemnation. They persevered and endured under hardship. Now, this is not the COVID mandate type hardship, you understand. Right? This is 10 days in prison, being tortured. And if you if you don't recant, then we're going to throw you to the lions type hardship. Okay? True. And in, 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 uh, in the book Corinthians... Uh, Paul refers to that hardships like facing wild animals at Ephesus, meaning that the church, that numbers of the church were being taken out, tested, tortured, and then just put to death. And these these were hardships. All right, that hardships can be good. Uh, no one really wants them, but they really do kind of make you stand and say, "What is it that I believe?" And they were enduring all sorts of hardships and persecutions. And they endured it. They hated the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, uh, this is referred to uh, a number of times, a similar type practice where the church really took on the belief of the world. Now, many theologians believe this was from one of the early evangelists who went round and then Basically, they blended the sensuality and the, the idol worship that's in the world and they adopted this sort of non-pure sort of religion. And this, Jesus really loved the fact that they hated the works of the Nicolaitans, not the Nicolaitans. He didn't say you hate the Nicolaitans. He said, but you hate those works. That means you despise them. So you really do attempt to give you, you keep to keep your church and, and your faith pure, and they were really good. But then he has this warning, and he has this charge. He says in verse four, "You have abandoned the love that you have at the first. He says, "Return to it. Return to your first love." And that's why I think probably for much of the churches, probably especially in our movement and our neck of the woods that this is a thing that we constantly need to be on top of that have uh, do we love God uh, are, our fe- are our emotions our heart's desire like they were when we were first saved what do we do about that this is a big issue okay and then the crown the crown was one which is due for all churches that overcome that's the crown of life which is the reward that we'll have as we move into eternity but the the uh the consequences was that I will take away the candle from you. And uh, it's not really a hard image to understand uh, when you just look at, at what it was referring to in the scriptures. And we have all sorts of uh, sayings which kind of uh, we have, you know, I- I'm just not feeling it like I used to. Or I- I'm just not getting anything out of church anymore. Uh, you know, like... Uh, Pastor's just not anointed like he used to be, or uh, the, the, there's no grace there for me anymore. And, and all those really are, are quite self-righteous religious comments because Jesus understood that they just weren't feeling it anymore. They weren't. 
And, uh, and his issue was not that you're not doing everything, you're coming in, you're setting up, you know, you're doing things, you're giving your tithes and lots of stuff, he said. But when it comes down to it, it's not about doing, it's about us and God and the relationship that we have with him, you know, and do we know that love? And it is interesting in the first church, Jesus addressed that relationship, that love between him and them. You don't have that love anymore. Uh, and it's like, it, it's, it's the curse, I want a better word, but it's, it's the affliction of the dedicated good Christian, you know, the sort of the good Christian, you know. I've got to do this, I've got to do that, I've got to go to church, you know. And when weariness starts to overtake them, they don't know why. And Jesus was concerned, and so he says to them, if that continues, I'll remove the lamp. Now, that doesn't mean you lose your salvation. It just feels like you have. It doesn't mean that God's changed. You just think he has and feel like he has. It doesn't mean that you're going to go to hell, but some days you don't care whether you do or you don't. It doesn't, because the lamp was about light. It was about understanding. It was about warmth. It was about direction. It was about the presence and the anointing of the Holy Spirit on your life to know His will for you, to have that illumination, that revelation which was for that church, but also for us personally, because God has a plan and a purpose for our lives. But the scary thing is, guys, we allow our first love to fade. Eventually, that lamp is taken away. And the plans and purposes that God has for us and that sense of awe of what a mighty God we serve, what a privilege it is to serve Him, what an honor it is to be in the house of the Lord. You know, we, we sort of, we become the ones that uh, cynically look at David as he's dancing up in the hill when David's singing, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and he's dancing and twirling and we become the ones to say, I know David, I know what he's done. He's a hypocrite. Yeah. But I want some real I want a real pastor, a real leader. We become that one. Instead of the ones that, that say, I am forgiven, I'm redeemed, God's been good to me, I'm gonna get down there and dance with him. And so they had grown tired of this. And so God says to the church, any church, and you can see it movement after movement after movement. You can see once tradition sets in, they're doing things for the sake of doing it. And then the lamp is taken away. That influence is taken away from them in society. And it doesn't mean, uh, you know, uh, there's some wonderful denominations now, but gosh, they're not what they used to be, are they? All right? And, and our call and our challenge, Jesus' challenge to us, because we're Ephesians 2. It's like, uh, you know, John F. Kennedy, Ip Bin Berliner. We are Ephesians as well, all right? Is to make sure that first love stays kindled. And so our joy and our purpose and God's presence and his anointing stays with us. So we're going to talk a little bit about keeping that first love going. How's that? All right. 
First thing to remember is that Jesus didn't say to them, you have fallen out of love with me. You don't fall out of love with God. You don't fall out of love with your partner or your husband or your wife. You don't, you don't wake up one morning, trip over the threshold and love gets shaken out of your top pocket. It doesn't happen like that. It doesn't happen like that. It happens gradually and slowly because you've stopped valuing the things which cause you to fall in love in the first place. Uh, we are made spiritually and emotionally for our affections to follow our attention. Alright? That's how he made us. And so he said to the church in Ephesus, turn and do the things you did at the beginning. Now, it, uh, love is not work, but your works will cause it to stir up within you. Alright? And there is a... a a famous story, I don't know how true it is, and I've mentioned it before, about a lady who's going for a divorce, and she says to the divorce lawyer, I really want to take him for everything. I want to take him for everything. He said, do you really want to destroy him? She says, yes, I want to destroy him. He said, well, we won't do anything now, but for six months I want you to go back, and I want you to make him his favorite meal, and I want you to dote on him, I want you to care for him, and do all these things, come back and see him, mean there, and then we'll issue these divorce papers, and that will destroy him. She came back after six months. He said, right, let's write up the divorce papers. She said, ah, I don't know. He said, well, what's up? She said, well, I think I love him. And so those things the church in Ephesus was doing right at the start, which caused that love. Now, Jesus said, turn with me, please, to Matthew chapter 6. Jesus addressed this issue. It's amazing how often, and we, we have this phrase, you often hear it, well, it's about the heart. Well, what does that mean? Uh, what does it mean? Um, and so often, you know, like uh, Christianity, uh, you know, it is intellectual, it is rigid, it holds up historically, it's truth, it holds up logically, but, you know, that's just logic, Right? God wants our affection and our attention. The Bible says the Holy Spirit jealously desires after us. And Jesus addressed that a number of times. It actually is addressed to a number of the churches in the book of Revelation, a very similar issue. But Jesus said this in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 19. He says, Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. He says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, it, I find it interesting uh, up until recently, uh, a few years ago, when uh, I would always quote that scripture that uh, says that uh, you, uh, for your heart... Um, for your, your treasure is where your heart is. For where your treasure is, there your heart is. Now, I shouldn't have said it the correct way first, but who has heard that, that scripture said that way? For where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Is it just me? I heard that explained because we have, and even really, I said like until recently when I, was, I noticed it, I would quote that scripture. It's a little bit like that scripture, may you be uh, kept whole, uh, spirit, soul, and body. But most of us say body, soul, and spirit because we're 
we're more body conscious, but the Bible says spirit, soul, and body because your spirit is the, the most important thing. But here, uh, we sort of think that, that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. And I've heard that quoted, I've heard it preached, that where your heart is, that's where your treasure is. But that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. Where you invest your time and what you value, you decide to put value in, that is where your heart will be. So, you know, uh, husbands, who's a husband here who'd like to be a husband? (laughs) You know, there's this thing going about love languages. You better get it right. Okay, okay. You better get it right. Right, uh, because they know, ladies know, if your heart's not in on it. All right, and because uh, they have that that sense, right, and it's true, and we need to repent and we need to hang our head and shame the forgiveness, because they know, all right, because they know actually inside of them that the heart follows where your treasure is, and your treasure is where you invest what you think is important, what you are looking to for a source of your joy, you know, what, what, what you value, that's where your treasure is. I've got a few stocks and a few shares, and up until recently, uh, I probably look at them 20 times a day. And uh, that's pretty silly, really, don't you think? I've become a bit more disciplined, and I'm, I'm glad to say that now sometimes I've gone a few days without looking at them. So I'm growing, all right? But where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. And there was things that the church in Ephesus did which showed that their relationship with God was a treasure, okay? Um, This is for everyone. This happens to everyone, not just me. I know you're sitting there thinking, well, that just happens to you, Pastor. It didn't really happen to me. It might happen. And this happens to all of us. The wear and tear of Christian life. Jesus in the parable of Sower says, the cares of the world wear us down. You know the uh, great American redwoods, the Californian redwoods, I think they're sequoia trees or something. Does anyone know something like that? And uh, just some years ago, uh, of course they've lived uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. They're actually not hardwoods, you know, they're softwoods. And and they're huge. And of course they're you know, when they were sort of the forest became very popular, tourists started coming in and walking around them. And well, some years ago, in the, for no apparent reason, one of the great American redwoods just topped, crashed, and they're worried it might be disease, it might be rotten. And, you know, they went and they cut it through and they counted the rings. And this was planted well before, back in the 1500s, back in the, before the King James, when, when the King James Version of the Bible was written, it was already a big tree. And when, when, uh, when uh, the British landed in, in the States and the Spanish and all that it was already a giant. You know, for the American Civil War, it was towering. And, and, and and then all the way through the the, uh, the, the war of uh, independence before that, and all these great moments in history, you know. And I, when I read about it, they told me how tall it would have been, you know, by that time it was like a skyscraper. Right? 
right through World War One and World War Two and this huge event. And then one day it came down. And the arbitrists went there and there was no disease. It wasn't rotten. They didn't know why it formed. And when they looked at the root structure, they realized because of all the people that were coming to look at it and walking around it and just compacting it down, that the roots started to, to die. And it fell from the everyday pressures in life. And this book, this letter to the church of Ephesus is Jesus saying, beware of the everyday pressures of life. You know, he instituted the Sabbath so we could spend time with him. And we need to purpose to spend that time with him. If we're not reading our Bibles or praying every day, we need to purpose to, to do that and spend that time ministering to the Lord, put on some Christian music and just worship Him. And if we don't feel like it, who knows your feelings will follow your affection. You know, it is just such a simple thing. I remember going on a mission trip to Africa, visiting Africa, and it was the middle of summer here, and uh, and I would be mad keen cricket follower back then. I'd be, you know, but I couldn't get the cricket scores. And you know, when I came back after four weeks or so, I couldn't care less about what the cricket scores were. <laughs> Who can say amen to that? Right, probably just as well, especially if you're English. All right. Okay, and, and you know, like the tennis is going at the moment, but if you don't know who's playing or whatever, you know, you've got no affection, no attention to it, right? So your heart isn't there because it's not your treasure. But if you watch a little bit and you get a little bit interested, who knows that we need to pay God at least that honor every day to spend time with Him. So, what was the church in Ephesus like? Well, turn with me to Acts chapter 18 and just get some, some clues as to what the church of Ephesus was like. They were an amazing church. Paul was there for two years. Acts chapter 18, did I say that? Really, in this thing, Jesus is saying to us, um, don't blame the symptoms, look at the cause. You know, we have all sorts of religious sayings. I've mentioned it before, you know, the grace is lifted. But really, we need to realize it works before worship equals weariness. It works before worship equals weariness. Uh, Doing before being equals boring. You become tired of it. We're to be and we're to be before we do. There is that saying, you know, it says, do what you love and you'll never work a day. In your life, you know that expression, do what you love and never work a day. That's what our faith is supposed to be like. You could say, love what you do, and you'll never work a, a day in your life as well. So, the church in Ephesus had these traits. Acts chapter 20 and uh, Acts 18 verse 20, we see here that the church in Ephesus loved Christian fellowship. Now, we have up here, as part of our, our goals and visions as a church, to be encouraged through fellowship. And you can see that the church uh, in Acts 18 verse verse 20, it says, okay, Uh, verse 19, when they reached Ephesus, he left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and debated with the Jews. And they asked him to stay for a longer time. 
They desired, Paul is saying, to have fellowship. Verse 27 says, And when he wanted to cross over to Acacia, the brothers and sisters wrote to the disciples and welcomed him. Uh, they had a strong desire for fellowship. The, the Bible says when he got there, there was about a dozen, uh, a dozen men who were baptized under John's baptism. And they started the church in the Ephesus, uh, of Ephesus. And, and they got together after that. The Bible says for two years, he hired a horn, he taught them. We are designed to have Christian fellowship. There is, a, there is a gift which we all bring to each other. We're not perfect. We're the vessels. But there is a design that God has that when we sit down and have fellowship that we are strengthened and encouraged. And the church in Ephesus obviously had that desire to meet with each other and to... to, to uh, have that fellowship. We we need to purpose to have that fellowship. Alright? The second thing that they had, they made it a priority of studying God's word. Look at chapter 19, verse 8. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke, spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. And some of the Jews especially became hardened and would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd. He withdrew from them. He took the disciples and, and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years. They all went to Bible college. They had a two-year Bible college course with Paul. Who'd like to have that? You know, Paul is your lecturer, you know. And I don't know what they did. They might have videotaped in the Apostle John and Peter. Or, or, you know, what, I'm sure they probably had letters that went around. So they, the, the Word of God was a priority for the church in Ephesus. That was one of their first love. And then in Acts 19, verse 18, they acted on God's Word. It says, And many who had become believers... Uh, came confessing, disclosing their practices. They burnt their books and they calculated their value to be 50,000 pieces of silver. This church had a love for God. It had a love for fellowship, had a love for God's word, and it couldn't wait to act it. And amazing things happened. Many miracles that happened. This is the one where the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit fell in such an obvious way and the seven sons of Stephen and all that sort of spooky stuff happened. That was the church in Ephesus. But then 30 years later, 40 years later, they had grown tired. All right? We need to go back and do again the things that... Who remembers how much, you know, the love and the joy they had in there? When they were first saved, all right. I can remember. You know, I was born again, as you remember, which is on the 17th of January, 1975, which was a it was a Thursday, all right, at 8:20 p.m. and then at Calvary Teen Ranch, Calvary. And uh, don't check that date because I think I'm off by one year. <laughs> it was a Thursday, and you know, I was just so excited. Uh, I went and got myself a Bible. All right, I think my parents bought it for me. And it was the White Good News Bible. Anyone remember the White Good News Bible's been around that long? Hallelujah, that's it. And, you know, that was just, and it was white, you know. And I carried that everywhere. I took it to school with me, uh, and I had it, you know, marked in my favorite, and I had my, my memory verses. Who remembers memory verses, right? Who put them on the back of the toilet? 
I had some friends that they put them on posters on the wall above their above their, their bed on the ceiling above their bed, and that's what it was like when we were first saying we just couldn't get enough of God's word, could we? You know, we just couldn't. You know, we 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 need to fall in love again with His voice. And, and I would get every Christian music. There wasn't the choice. We didn't have YouTube back then. All right? We had, who did we have? Who was that? On the wings of a snow. That little Swedish girl. Evie. Evie Torquist. Who had Evie Torquist? Who had, and Keith Green. Yeah, we had them, didn't we? It was like, and, and Petra. You know, and we were just so excited about this. And we played it over and over again. You know, and you made these tapes. Now, youngins, there was things called tapes, all right, cassette tapes, all right, and it was amazing technology because you could actually record the radio and get your own music. And so, you know, if you if you're really lucky, you could record from the record on your tape, and you know what, you could splice them. This was good technology. You get scissors and cut them, and then you'd stick and tape them together so you get all your favorites and you know as christians we would trade favorites you know we invented the ipod before there was the ipod it was the tape decks and remember the cars were filled with them and we just you know and there's that joy who wants that joy back who wants that first love who wants to to know to know that joy, that excitement, to worship and that and not become hardened by the world and hardened by religion. Do the things we first did to fall in love. That's what the Sabbath for every day. Make that time. Worship. God will speak to you. He'll meet you there. I've never set aside time to spend with God and him not be there. Go figure. Go figure. Alright. It's the first, the first commandment, the first injunction in the book of Ephesus was to return again to your first love. Praise God. Let's bow our heads. Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you that you're here in our midst. We thank you that you care about the relationship that we have with you and with each other. But Father, we You've spoken to us today about returning to our first love. Let's not blame our work or our circumstance or our situation or the pastor or all the music, but to realise that it's our responsibility to kindle again that first love, the love of our salvation. Father, we've all heard from the Holy Spirit this morning. We know what we're to do. Thank you, Lord, for the strength to do that. This week in Jesus' name. Amen.